Pitiful Passwords, a GitHub gaffe, and Firefox at 100. All that more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. Hello, everybody, from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Paul, we like to begin the show with a fun fact. And my fun fact for you this week is a quick one. The most commonly used password is 123. Can you guess what the next three digits are? Yes, Doug. 456. I bet you it used to be 1234. And then several years ago, remember, (laughs) Apple said no more four digit passcodes. Yep. Has to be six. Oh, golly, it's time to pick a proper password. So they added five, six. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Of course, I always wonder with these surveys, you get one every year, is how much of it is just made up guff. Because you get someone, what is your password? I mean, they're just going to say one, two, three, four, five, six, because it'll get rid of you. So you never quite know. So I think most people are okay. But I have met in the past few months, without meaning to, people that I assumed would know better who have really silly passwords like their name followed by a four-digit number that starts with one nine. Uh-huh. And where when you look at the last two digits, you think, you know what? If you subtract that number from 2022, it's a pretty good guess of their age. Yes, sir. Oh, Folks. You can't do that. You couldn't do it in 1985. You couldn't do it in 1995. You certainly can't do it as we approach 2025. It's just too easy to guess. Well, that's a nice segue into our first uh, item up for bids here. We're going to talk about uh, behind the scenes. We record this on Tuesdays, but Thursday is World Password Day. So it is, Doug. 5th of March, World Password Day. Not World 2FA Day, not world do all your patches day not sysadmin appreciation day that's coming just world password day and it's the day to think about you know what i hate passwords everyone hates passwords we'll soon have a password free environment just the same day that we get our flying cars and our personal jetpacks until then let's just try and do things a little bit better although it's not super simple it's not that hard is it doug to pick proper passwords. It shouldn't be. Particularly no. if... Go on, you finish it. <laughs> if you use a password manager. Absolutely. My favorite. And I think you and I were talking about this uh, before the show started. The problem is everyone has too many passwords to keep track of because every site you go to makes you create an account for some reason. They just want they want your data. They want to lock you in. So all these accounts, yeah, that's all these passwords. Yeah, not going to go away, is it? No. I notice in the UK quite a lot of sites these days are actually saying... Would you like to create an account for next time or do you just want to buy as a guest? And when you click buy as a guest, it's just like old times. You don't need to create a username or a password in a hurry where you're likely to pick the password change me. And you think that every person that ever put a change me into that password field and ended up on the most common passwords list never got round to doing it, did they? No, of course not. So password manager makes it easy. You pick a nice password right off the bat. Yes, indeed. All right, so you will have a post up on Thursday. And the idea is we know that most of our listeners are already on top of this password stuff. The idea of supporting World Password Day and writing some material that gives 
simple English, plain English, entry-level advice. It's for you to help get your auntie, your cousins, your mum, your kids across the line by saying, A, it's important. B, it's not that difficult. C, why don't you cross the bridge today? That's the plan. So look out for that on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And we have uh, a story about GitHub. We talked about this a little bit uh, not too long ago. We have something of an update. This was kind of, uh, we've got some more information about this breach, and it was kind of an indirect data breach. That's right, Doug. The, The reason we wrote about it at the end of last week is that it looks as though GitHub, Microsoft owns GitHub, obviously, are finally now confident to say, look, we, we've worked out everyone who is affected. And so by now, we're in the final stages of notifying everybody. And it's an important story because although the common symptom here was GitHub accounts penetrated and private source code stolen, that was, if you like, the symptom, not the cause. The passwords were actually stolen somewhere else. And it is rather easy when you say, oh, Suddenly today, 100,000 people have realized that at the same time, they've all had their Facebook accounts compromised. We've had stories like that before. And the obvious conclusion you jump to is, oh dear, Facebook have had a blunder. Facebook's got this giant hole. Everybody panic. And then you find out that what actually happened is that some crook's been collecting passwords for ages, finally sold a giant whopping dump of passwords to somebody who decided, right, today's the day we're going after Facebook accounts only. So the Facebook hacking was, say, the symptom, not the cause. Exactly the same in this case. So it wasn't something that everybody at GitHub needed to panic about. At the same time, it meant that there was no hole for GitHub to find and fix. What happened is their authentication tokens that let automated services get into their account had been stolen from some other so-called continuous integration. DevOps-style cloud services. So that's why we dubbed it an indirect attack, Doug. So this is Microsoft not jerkily saying it kind of wasn't our fault. No, the the, the report is quite interesting reading. It's pretty short, but they've put a summary. Obviously, they don't know how step zero happened, but basically they've been able to figure out that some group of attackers acquired a bunch of GitHub authentication tokens from, it seems, either entirely or primarily from two automated services. Heroku was one, and Travis CI was the other. CI is continuous integration. And that is where you're a programmer. And instead of once a month, you all get together, share your changes, mash them into a new build and test it. Continuous integration says every time anybody makes any change that's approved temporarily into the software, into the source code tree, which is what you use something like GitHub for, maintaining your source code, let an automated system grab the new code, compile it, build it, and do at least some basic tests on it every single time. You just do it over and over and over. You're not planning to release all of those or do one beta a day. You just want to make sure that while you're building new code, You don't either break the build process or break the code in a trivial way that you could easily have detected. And that if you don't do something about it now, there'll be a a hundred other people in your code base will rely on your change and their code will break as well. So it's a great idea, this continuous integration. You just got this cloud service that every time you change your code, it just checks that it still passes 
the basic test and it can be built. In other words, you haven't actually broken the build system itself. Fantastic idea. The problem is it means that you need to authorize these cloudy services to jump into your, say, GitHub account or whatever other source code control system you use and dig into not just your public open source stuff, but possibly into your private code bases as well. So those things need blessing, if you like, with an authentication token in just the same way that if you use a program like Hootsuite to automate, say, access to things like Twitter and Facebook and other social media accounts, you have to go into those social media accounts and say, I want to generate this magic code for this app to be able to do stuff for me. It's exactly the same idea in this GitHub breach. And so it looks as though some person or persons unknown must have decided, right, let's do this before anyone else does. Let's go after source code. And it looks like that's what they're after. Get the authentication tokens, find out all the accounts that are visible based on the names of the projects that come up, pick the interesting ones, and then find all the code repositories in each of those projects that in turn sound interesting, and then basically suck down the source code. So it sounds like what you might call a general purpose, broad as you can, targeted attack. Okay, so this sounds a little bit like a supply chain attack that we've, some, we've talked about these stories earlier in the year. And we have some advice about how to protect against this, these types of uh, mishaps, starting with regularly review all third-party access authentications that you have made. Easier said than done, am I right? You are very much right, Doug. And this doesn't just apply, obviously, if you think, well, I'm not a programmer, I don't use GitHub, you know, I'm not working on collaborating with 50 other people on some super secret, massive stealth mode startup code project that I don't want anyone to know anything about. Like I said earlier, this also applies to things like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all your social media stuff, where you may have basically copied and pasted some magic hexadecimal authentication token string into that software. And it's amazing how often when we do warnings about things like the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and whatnot, it's amazing how many people commenters come back and said, you know what, I thought I'd look, and my golly, there were all those apps there that I'd forgotten about. Other apps that I'd installed on my phone, I'd given them the rights, and then I uninstalled the app. I didn't realize that the authentication token for that app was still valid. So learn how to review and learn how to, say, revoke. Because sometimes, like in this GitHub case, you might need the revocation powers in a hurry. Okay, so you did. You covered your second point. Make sure you know how to revoke these third-party authentication tokens. And then finally, prepare for the worst. When you have a data breach that's based on something like this, you might have data disclosure laws in your jurisdiction and you know, require you to tell the regulator or tell your shareholders, SEC or whatever it is, within a certain amount of time. You might as well know what the right process is and which people in the company are going to take charge of it because these things typically have deadlines, say for a data breach in your jurisdiction, it might be 72 hours. You don't want to have to spend 36 of those hours running around finding out who you're supposed to call, because that'll just put more pressure on you exactly when you don't need it. Okay, very good. 
That is GitHub issues final report on supply chain source code intrusions on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it's time in the show for our This Week in Tech History segment. Another week, another worm, Paul. This week it's Sasser. Born April 30th, 2004, Sasser was so-called because it exploited a buffer overflow in the LSAS component of Windows XP in 2000. Interestingly enough, Sasser was actually patched by Microsoft in its April updates before the worm was released into the wild. So that's another reminder to patch early and patch often, Paul. It certainly is. LSAS, or L-S-A-S-S, as many people said, it is the Windows Local Security Authority Subsystem Service. And if you go and look for lsass.exe on your Windows computer with a, with a spelunking tool, you'll find that it generally has a very, very low-numbered process ID. It might be in the very low hundreds, not in the thousands, like the notepad you're running probably has. And that's because it starts extra super early because it's the local security authority subsystem service. (laughs) And it's meant to mitigate who can come into your computer or not. And it kind of has to be there to decide whether someone gets to log in. And in this case, there was a bug in the process that decided whether you would be allowed to log in that meant you could basically kick off the virus attack without logging in at all. And even worse, because it couldn't be 100% sure which operating system version you're using, in particular, did you have XP or Windows 2000? And if so, which variant did you have? Because basically, there was no address-based layout randomization in those days. So typically, what worms and viruses would do is they'd find a magic address in memory where they could stick some code, jump there, and do some naughty things. And of course, if they pick the wrong address, which is entirely dependent on the exact version of the operating system you've got, then the process they were trying to take over would blow up and crash. And if you crash LSASS, well, Windows is kind of sunk. It's critical enough that what you, what you would get is if the virus was trying to attack your computer and it, it made the wrong choice and, it, oh, look, a server. <laughs> oh, no, golly, it turned out you were running XP. Sorry, your computer will now have to reboot. The problem is that most of the time it would get it right. So by the time you saw the message, which basically gives you, I think the default was 60 seconds, and you could quickly open a command prompt, frenziedly type in a command to stop your computer shutting down and losing everything. It wasn't quite like a blue screen of death, but it was jolly close. By the time you saw that message, it probably meant that you already infected anyway, (laughs) because (laughs) previous attempts by the virus might very well have worked. So it was both a nuisance and a security disaster at the same time. And it was also a good reminder of why today, as back then, even if you don't care about your computer, it really matters if you don't clean up malware. Because what you would do in this case is, once you're infected, you would actually act as an FTP server to dish up the virus to the next guy. So you were actively helping to spread it. And you'd start probing other people's computers, possibly causing their computers to crash. So you really, really were part of the problem, not part of the solution, even if you decided to do nothing and you didn't care about your data. And that's just as true these days. Even if you don't care, everyone else does. And sometimes you have to show that necessary cybersecurity altruism that makes you a decent citizen of 
the internet. Not that I feel strongly about it. <laughs> well, great context and great advice. And uh, we have a great story, a heartwarming tale. You may recall a couple weeks back, we talked about uh, Google Chrome hitting version 100 and Firefox about to hit version 100 and how it uh, may have caused the universe to collapse in upon itself like a dying star. But it turns out that... Uh, Are you sure you're not a journalist, Douglas? <laughs> Chrome 100 <laughs> and Firefox 100. Uh, yeah, th they're both here. Firefox has almost caught up. It worked. Nothing bad Chrome happened. just went to 101, I think. It had its 100, scored its century, made its ton. As you'd say in cricket, scoring 100 runs is quite a big deal. When anyone does it, the crowd will stand to its feet and applaud you. Not everyone gets to do it in their in their cricketing life. So 100's quite cool. And, uh, of course, Firefox, I think, does it every updates every 28 days, exactly four weeks. And I think the Chromium numbers, they normally bump up at the beginning of each month. So eventually, uh -huh. if that goes on, there are, on average, there are, I think, 30 and a half days in the average calendar month. But there are always... 28 days in every four-week period. So I suppose eventually Firefox will creep ahead. I think it's just coincidental that they arrived at those numbers at about the same time. So they're both at 100. And the theory was, I think you, you made that suggestion in the podcast, didn't you, Doug, that a lot of webs... Oh, no, not a lot. At least some websites, including at least some mainstream ones that you think would know better, when they saw you were using Firefox or Chrome, they... They had some regular expression or some parsing code that went, oh, take the user agent string. The version number's only two digits, so just extract those. And if they took the first two digits, <laughs> they get 10. 10. <laughs> if they took the last two digits, they get version 00, which you know, when, you, when you convert it to a number comes out at zero. So they go, oh, golly, you've got far too old a browser. And they either wouldn't let you in or they'd, they'd give you some super-duper ancient 1997 unusable in the modern era version of the site <laughs> so that was the fear for a while and in fact i think both of the google and the mozilla programmers they were trying to build up a sort of an allow list of sites for which this might cause trouble so when they saw those sites they could secretly pretend to be version 99 for a few more months so either that worked or all the outlying websites who had their own modern version of a millennium bug. Oh, two digits will be enough forever. Uh, maybe all of those websites have, in the intervening couple of months, fixed their code. Because I use Edge and Firefox, and they're both now version 100, and I haven't had any problems with any websites yet. Okay, so that update went well. No new zero days in the past month for Firefox either. But we do have some bug no, fixes. that's quite nice. Plenty of bug fixes, which is quite good. You know, when there aren't zero days, that's something that you can be pleased about. Yeah, I suppose the developers can maybe pat themselves on the back a little bit. Kind of means, hey, we got there first. If you get the update promptly, you will be ahead because as we've said many times before, sadly, when you get updates for things that were responsibly disclosed, just the changes in the code, even if all you have is executable code, by comparing what change an attacker can get a jolly good hint of where to go looking for vulnerability slash exploit. If you're looking for a needle in the haystack, it's easy if someone tells you in advance, it's in the top row. Oh, and it's, it's in the northwest corner of the barn, Doug. That's 
always a good reason to patch early, patch often, even if it feels unurgent. All right. Well, that is Firefox Hits 100, fixes bugs, but no new zero days this month on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And as the sun begins to delicately set on our show for today, let's hear from one of our readers. Regarding our 2022 State of Ransomware survey we discussed last week, Naked Security reader Peter writes, Crazy high average ransom payment for Japan. If I could sidebar, I'll just remind you that we found the average ransom payment for Japan was more than $4 million, which kind of brought the average for all the other countries up. Sure did. He says, although I think the median payment is much more relevant and interesting than the average, could you share the median number as well? And Paul, you spent some time crunching the numbers. For those who can't remember, the mean is where you add up all the numbers and divide by the number of readings. And the problem with the mean is if you have one super huge number, then it drags all the others up, which is why, you know, if you look at what's the mean weekly wage in your country, it's probably surprisingly high because there are a few people who are multi-billionaires and they earn such a lot that they drag the total up. So that's the mean average. The modal average is just simply the most common value. And sometimes that's quite useful, um, particularly if the number of different possible readings is quite small. And the median average is basically the person halfway up the list. And you, know, for, you can think for things like average wage or salary, that's a much better measure of what people are earning on average than the mean. So those numbers were in fact means. And uh, Japan had a mean average ransom payment that people said they'd paid of 4 million US dollars. And the global mean average was $800,000. But if you're looking for some slightly better bad news, if if you can say that, indeed, the (laughs) medians do turn out quite a bit lower. We said that the mean average for the world was 800,000. The median average turns out to be, by my calculations, 78,000 US dollars. Let's round that up to 80,000. So that's one tenth of the mean average. However, Douglas, oh, all right. it might not be $800,000, but it's still 80,000. <laughs> yeah. That's the median. And although that sounds suitably lower than the mean, both numbers are important. And the fact that the mean was 800,000 did mean that in some cases, people were squeezed into paying very high numbers indeed. The median's kind of more comforting, but the mean is what should worry you in case you're one of the super multiply unlucky ones. So as Mr. Miyagi famously said, Best way to avoid punch, Doug, no be there. <laughs> Don't let the ransomware in in the first oh. place. A lot, of, a lot of security podcasts out there. I, I'm wondering if any of them this week leveraged a quote from the Karate Kid. I hope we're the only one. And uh, Peter, thank you for your question. I hope that answers it. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at selfos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay Stay secure. secure.